Hi guys, hi ladies, Merry Christmas. Sweet to say that. I think that's the first time I've said that. Something about the ambiance, tis the season. My name's Evan, I'm a pastor down here. Major role of mine is to teach you guys what the Spirit leads me to teach you, to bring you to the Bible, but an even bigger part of that is to come alongside you and just find out about your story, figure out ways that the church, the collective body can come alongside you and encourage or support for me to help you find ways to do what God is calling you to do. So if any of those things ring a bell for you, just come and talk to me. Before we jump into uh, the Bible, which is why I hope you guys are here to worship God and learn about him, just a couple announcements that I want to make. A few things that are coming up. Uh, first one, Christmas Eve service. We will be having one down here. Uh, it'll be at 4 o'clock on Christmas Eve, and there will be child care for kids 3 and under. Um, and there'll be chairs set up out in the back. Uh, it's a great chance to invite people that don't normally want to come to church or don't normally come. Um, so we will be having something down here at 4 o'clock. Uh, the main campus will be having one at 3 and 5. So plenty of opportunities to come and just think about the birth of Jesus, but even more so to get people that don't normally want to be in church in church. You just never know what some nugget of truth may do to them in those moments. Um, the second thing, come after the new year, we'll be having small groups um, here downtown as well as campus-wide. I'd say this all the time, but this is just the, what the nature of a teacher. I found if you repeat things over and over, eventually somebody will hear you. It's all right to come down and listen for a half an hour one day a week. You learn a little bit. But man, if you really want to learn what the Bible is about, and even more so who the God of the Bible is, you got to get plugged in and groove set, encourage, and give you incentive to study on your own. Um, we learn in both lines and circles. This is more of a line where it's just like a laser beam. But the circles, the small groups, are where you really get to spend time thinking and praying and working through the deeper ideas. So that'll be in about a month or so, so it gives you time to think and, and hopefully plan to be a part of that. Last thing, anybody like ping pong? Yeah, a few of you. I have no idea what this is all about, but... The, uh, there's like 10 of these on the back table, and it's connected directly to the sermon that we're having tonight. And it's a chance for parents to go home and interact with your kids and teach them a similar lesson that you guys are going to be kind of studying through tonight. Uh, the idea of child care, I shouldn't even say that, children's church is not child care. It's to give them a little nugget, again, of truth. But man, it starts here, but it's got to continue at home. Do not trust the church to be enough for your kids to understand who God is. It's a God-given responsibility, and this is just a way to help that happen. So, on the back table. Wonderful. There's plenty more announcements in here, but it's about all my interests will allow me to talk about. Sweet. I'm going to pray just to focus my mind. Feel free to join me. God, thank you for giving us life, for putting breath in our lungs, thoughts in our minds. We are here because we want to know more about you. We are here because we need you. So please allow just some form of worship, some form of deeper understanding to take place. We count on you and you alone. Amen. All right, so if you got a Bible, we're going to be in Isaiah 9. Just give you some time to turn there. But we're a uh, 
a little ways into, about halfway into our, through our Advent series. Advent simply means longing. And we, we've been looking at the innate longing that we all have for something better than this world can offer. We all have this because we were made for more. Last week, we looked at the importance and power of hope, that genuine confidence that God will continue to bring more of his goodness into this world. We saw that hope is a crucial part of, the experiencing, of experiencing the abundant life. When we confidently know that better things are ahead for us, it gives us the ability to endure the present hardships and to engage in our current battle against darkness. Tonight, I want us to think about some of the reasons why we can have assurance that God will bring about the promises that he makes. Before we dive into the book of Isaiah, I want to share a couple stories about confidence. Get those out. Thank you. Sorry. I can easily talk just out of my own thoughts, but man, you would go down so many rabbit trails that you do not want to go down. So that's why I try to stick with what God has given me throughout the week. All right, let me share a couple stories about the way confidence in a person has either been lost or has been solidified. So when my wife, Rosalind, was 9 or 10, she would carpool to school and back home again. You guys know what that looks like. One day after school, her carpool buddy's grandpa came to pick them up. Her friend got into the car. As Rosalind was opening the door and about to step in, the car pulled away. She tried to run after the car, but Grandpa was too quick, leaving her standing alone in front of the school. At some point, the old man realized he had forgotten and turned around to grab his precious cargo. Five, ten, fifteen minutes later. You know how old men get lost in their own worlds. Right, I can picture my, my wife, a little nine, ten-year-old, fourth, fifth grader with her pigtails, clad in early 90s gear, right, standing there just utterly shocked at what had just happened. How do you think this made Rosalind feel about her confidence in this man, that he would do what he had promised to do? The other side of the coin. Directly after my rock climbing accident a couple years ago when my life was still in limbo, I had a close friends and family drop everything they were doing to come across the country to be with my wife. My brother, who lives in Hawaii, put everything in his normal life on hold and spent thousands of dollars, flew 12 hours in order to hang out in a hospital. Now, how do you think I feel about my confidence in these friends and my brother to do what they had promised to do? A major reason we can trust that a person will do what they have promised to do is by looking at their faithfulness in the past. To examine whether or not we can trust God to bring about the goodnesses that he has promised, we're going to look at Isaiah 9. Now, I want to warn you first. You give me a passage like this to teach on, prepare to spend a lot of time dissecting the Bible. I am a Bible nerd at heart, and this is a glorious passage. When we do this, it's impossible to comprehend the entire passage. What I want you to do is walk out of here simply with one thing to ponder. Just one thing. And when the Spirit brings that to your mind, I feel like that's the way he interacts, zone me out and just focus in on whatever he has brought to your mind. My hope, as always, is that you will, will slightly better understand the passage and that the God it describes so that way you can take time on your own to dig deeper into the truths that will change your life. 
Like I said with the kids, a half an hour will not do what it's supposed to do. Allow this just to get, be a catalyst to do more. All right, let's dig into the word. Isaiah 9, verses 1 through 7. But there will be no gloom for those who were in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he will make glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who lived in the land of deep darkness, on them light has shined. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as people exalt when dividing plunder. For the yoke of their burden and the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. For all the boots of the tramping warriors and all the garments rolled in blood shall be burned as fuel for the fire. For a child has been born for us, a son given to us. Authority or government rests upon his shoulders, and he is named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His authority shall grow continually, and there shall be endless peace for the throne of David and his kingdom. He will establish and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time onward and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. I'm guessing you guys have heard this passage or pieces of it before. Let me give you a little context. Isaiah was a prophet to the southern nation of Israel in the mid-700s B.C. To be a prophet simply means to be a mouth of God to speak the message that God has given them to a certain people. The definition of, in, of the Hebrew word most generally used for prophet means to bubble forth as from a fountain or simply to utter. A strong majority of the time, they simply are pointing out the Israelites' sin and warning them of the consequences that are coming. But scattered throughout the gloom and doom are pockets of light. God not only wanted his people to know their foolishness, and the natural results of their poor choices, even more so he wanted them to know of his abounding mercy and goodness. These passages have been labeled restorations, times in which the res God will restore the brokenness of a fallen world. The passage we just read is one of these. Now I tell you this in hopes that it will catch your attention. We are about to look at promises given by the almighty maker of everything. Seven verses that describe ways in which he has and will someday bring more of his goodness into our lives. Please shake the dust off of your conception of the beauty of Christmas. You most likely have heard the phrase, for unto us a child is born, a son is given. And you think of a child wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. Then you start thinking about a Christmas tree, family gatherings, presents you want, what you need to buy people. I get it. My mind goes there as well. But the nativity scene on your aunt's antique hutch is only the beginning. Isaiah was writing during a time of warfare and suffering in Israel. Look at the first verse. But there will be no gloom for those who were in anguish. In the former times, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. Due to Israel's continual and blatant disobedience to God, the northern kingdom had been heavily attacked by the Assyrian army, and they were now a vassal state. The first tribes, Zebulun and Naphtali, 
were the northernmost parts of the country, and so they were the first ones to receive the attack. Now you can imagine the reality of anguish and contempt as your home is being overtaken by a brutal enemy. But instead of letting them remain in despair, God gives them hope. Look at the remainder of that verse. But in the latter times, he will make glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. This is where the prophecy begins. This is where God's promise to his people are uttered. Over 750 years later, after Isaiah spoke or wrote this, Jesus would begin his ministry in Galilee, which used to be the tribes of Zebulun and Naphtali. It was a place in which many Gentiles or non-Jewish people lived. Now, this is noteworthy. It's so easy to gloss over this. It says so much about the Bible being far more than a self-help book written by other men. A prediction given over 750 years prior that names a place in which victory would begin and its future inhabitants does not happen without supernatural influence. Through his ministry, Jesus brings light into the world. Look at verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who lived in the land of deep darkness, on them a light has shined. Now in the Bible, light is often used to symbolize the good that God brings. Think about Genesis 1, the creation story. God said, let there be light. God didn't create darkness. Darkness is the absence of light. God spoke and dispelled the darkness. The light that, God, that comes from God is what brings life. Look at Psalms 30, 56, 13. For you have delivered my soul from death and my feet from falling, so I may walk before God in the light of life. The light that he creates is what he wants humanity to have. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. In John 1, we see Jesus directly referred to as light sent by God to shine into the darkness. What has come into being in him was life, and the life was the light of all the people. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. True light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. That's describing Jesus and what he brought. Now, the second verse in Isaiah tells of Jesus bringing his light to the rest of the world, not just the Jewish people. Jesus brought God's goodness to a part of Israel that was full of Gentiles, people of non-Jewish descent. By doing this, he breaks down the walls of nationalism and declares that the one who created everything loves everyone. One's ancestry has nothing to do with one's favor with God. God's love is and always will be there for all of mankind, and his favor is through faith and faith alone. Now, the Gentiles, they were immersed in a world of darkness. They still are. So are the Jewish people one in which they believed the gods were malicious and that they had to continually offer sacrifices to keep from being utterly destroyed. This is one of the major reasons why Jesus is described as a great light. Through the truth that Jesus brings, the nation of God multiplied and was filled with joy. Verse 3 in Isaiah, You have multiplied the nation. The nation of God, the Jewish nation, the Israelites, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as people exalt when dividing plunder. Man, but it was far more than just a concept that caused them to rejoice and exalt. It was also due 
to a victory that had taken place. Look at verse 4. For the yoke of their burden and the bar of their shoulders, the rod of their oppressors, you have broken as on the day of Midian. Now, if Isaiah was referring to physical freedom for the Jewish people, then his prophecy must be wrong. The Roman Empire ruled over Israel during Jesus' life and a good 400 years after. For the last 2,600 years, Israel has either been ruled by another power or in constant conflict with their neighbors. So that either means Isaiah was a false prophet or he was referring to another level of reality, the spiritual world. Now, prior to Jesus' ministry, according to the Bible, according to my view, everyone was a slave to darkness. We were chained to sin and death, which means that we could never overcome our selfish tendencies and that we would, be, we would be eternally separated from our perfect creator. But through Jesus' death and resurrection, we have been set free. Romans 6, 6. We know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be destroyed and we might no longer be enslaved to sin and eternal death. If you have cried out to the God of the Bible for salvation, then this prophecy was for you, and you are in the same state of victory. You no longer carry around the rod of your oppressor or the yoke of his burden. You have been set free from the chains of your sin. You are a child of God. You walk in the light of his presence. Psalms 89, 15. Spiritually, you are a new person. The old is dead, the new has come. The light of God now shines within you. The Spirit of God is in the deepest parts of who you are, continually giving you the freedom and the ability to choose light over darkness. You are no longer a prison to, prisoner to your brokenness. You have been set free. Now this is incredible and should greatly increase our joy. Like it says in Isaiah, it should, cause our, it should also cause our belief in the Bible as the word of God to become stronger. Isaiah 9, 6 tells us why we have received this freedom. For a child has been born for us, a son given to us. It doesn't say that a child has been born. It says that a child has been born for us. A son has been given to us. Our freedom has been freely given to us. We did nothing to earn it or deserve it. It was a gift from a perfect, all-powerful God to a flawed and temporary humanity. And this is another reason why this prophecy should strengthen our belief that the Bible is from God himself. So like I said, in 750 B.C., Isaiah predicted that a child would be born and then begin his revolution in Galilee. From this revolution, the entire world would respond and continue to do so for millennia. Without God, this sort of prophecy is not possible. And what's incredible, the prophecy doesn't stop there. Look at verse 5. For all the boots of the tramping warriors and all the garments rolled in blood shall be burned as fuel for the fire. Verse 7. His authority shall grow continually and there shall be endless peace for the throne of David and his kingdom. He will establish and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time onward and forevermore. 
The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. It's pretty obvious that Isaiah is describing a time of complete victory, a time when the enemies are totally defeated, a time when hardship and injustice would be fully done away with. Like I already mentioned, this has never occurred for the physical nation of Israel. It has never occurred for the Gentiles either. So once again, is Isaiah a false prophet? Did he get half of it right? The rest, not so much? No, I don't believe so. Throughout the Bible, when prophets are predicting times of restoration, we often see this occur. They predict something that was fulfilled in our past, still their future, and then directly tie it to something that still has not yet happened. Instead of discounting the truth of the prophecy, it is better for us to think about the prophet's perspective. Now, Isaiah was given incredible nuggets of God's goodness into humanity's brokenness, that was, but was given no idea of when they would occur. If he was, I'd imagine he would have given the reader more specific information. It's as if Isaiah was standing on a high point, looking off into the distance at the mountains. Got a slide for that one, Seth. He can see multiple mountaintops, but has no idea the distance that lies between the mountaintops. kind of starting to make sense a little bit. So when we look at Isaiah 9, we have to consider that the time of complete and total peace, justice, and righteousness still lies ahead of us. So if you look at that picture, the first couple could be Jesus coming and him um, shedding light into the darkness. And the last range is a time in which he comes and brings utter peace. From our perspective, we have no idea if that's a year, five years, Thousands of years. But we just see the promise before us. In the same way that Isaiah's readers were given hope of a time when light would break into their land of deep darkness, we have been given hope of a day when all that we hate in this world will be gone. A lifetime of experiencing only love, joy, and peace a world in which you are fully content and have full understanding of your purpose. Sounds nice, doesn't it? But how will we know that this will actually happen? Jesus was around, what, 2,000 years ago, and we're still in the midst of all this brokenness. Well, like I started this all, the reason we can know it will actually happen is by looking at what the one who made the promise has done in the past. Now, if your three-year-old confidently tells you that they've made the room spotless, they've flushed the toilet, or turned off the water in the sink, will you believe them without checking? Try it. See what happens. If someone who always lies to you makes a promise, will you believe them? I hope not. But if your parent, spouse, best friend, or closest business partner, people that you know well, those that you have seen be faithful to you in the past, if they tell you they will do something, will you believe them? I hope so. And this, is, this should be the same way that we approach the promises we read about in the Bible, whether it's this one or dozens and dozens of others. In Isaiah 6, God has been, has been faithful to fulfill the first set of promises, that he would make glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, the Galilee of the Gentiles. Was he faithful 
that the people who walked in darkness would see a great light? He was. He was so faithful. He made promises 750 years prior, and he was faithful to keep his promise. Throughout the Bible, we see so many examples of God making specific, improbable promises and then always bringing them to fruition. Isaiah 9 is only a fraction of the evidence of God's faithfulness and the divine nature of the Bible. And the biggest example of God's faithfulness is his promise to create a way for mankind to be reconciled to their creator. This is the overarching promise of the Bible. And in order to do this, to bring it to fulfillment, God became a man and died a sacrificial death. Think about what that says about God's level of faithfulness. Now think about your own life and the life of those you love. Has God set you free from various forms of oppression? Has he removed chains of addiction, despair, self-focus, greed? Have you seen him free those you love from crippling effects of fear, discontentment, or the need for the approval of others? And look at your past and think about if God has been faithful to pour his light into your deep darkness. The one who has been faithful in the past will remain faithful in the days to come because he is a wonderful counselor, a mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. These four titles sum up the God of the Bible so well. As a wonderful counselor, he desires to guide and direct you into the best way of living. That's the role of the Holy Spirit. As a mighty God, he is all-powerful. He created you and everything that you ever will ever know. He sustains our life. Without him, this moment would not exist. As an everlasting father, he is our provider and our protector, and we are his children. His role and desire is to care for us. As a prince of peace, He is the one that brings us internal peace, regardless of our circumstances. He is the one that guards our minds and our emotions against fear and anxiety. He is also the one who will put an end to all hatred and violence. I'm staying conceptual tonight, but I'm hoping that you're starting to better understand how faithful God is has been to you and all of humanity, and therefore how faithful he will to continue to bring his goodness into your life. And we can be confident that he will bring about his confidence, about his promises for the future. When we look at what he has done and his faithfulness in the past, we know that he will continue to do it in the future. That someday the authority will rest fully on his shoulders. That he will establish endless peace, justice, and righteousness. Man, if you take some time to meditate on this hope, that God will continue to be faithful to bring what only he can bring into your life, like some real time, like time and time and time again if you have to, just always bringing your mind back to that when you're in the midst of hardship, your hardships will seem far more like a passing shadow than the dark souls of your night, dark nights of your soul. If you don't believe me, just try it. 
understanding God's faithfulness has the ability to utterly conquer any sort of fear, anxiety, any sort of hopelessness that you might have for the days to come.